Here we go. So uh, during the during the worship time, I had a had a picture that I felt the Lord wanted me to share with you. Um, do you remember in the in the original Jurassic Park? It's pretty. It feels like a recent movie, but I guess it it's not anymore. Um, it's probably like one of the a movie you regard as a classic. Anyway, if if you remember, there's uh, the scene and they're um, they're out in that. Um, in that special kind of car thing, um, heading into Jurassic Park, and then um, there's this classic scene when that guy's cup of water, um, like a cup like this, and it had, you know, it's got water in it, and then, then there's the, then there's the riffle. Do you remember that? And it's like the boom, like the step of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it's like, and it sends us like shockwave, and then. All they know is they see this boom and like the ripple in that glass of water. Who remembers that? Yeah, good. A few people. So I had this picture and it was when Anna was singing that song and it has that line, when mercy falls. And then, uh, and then Caleb hit the, hit the pad and it was like boom and I, and I saw this like ripple um, like in that glass of water. And I felt like, I was like, there was something significant in, in that. And um, so I was having a bit of um, korero with... Um, with the Lord, and uh, trying to go, what's what's that about? And um, I felt that what He was saying is like every time, every time we uh, we're obedient to Him, every time we we trust the Lord enough to uh, to do something in obedience to Him, in obedience to Him, like whether it's um, you know whatever it is, these things happen every day. Uh, any act of obedience, it's actually it's actually His mercy falling in our in our world, and it's like this this. This uh, this kingdom of God stomp off the power of God in that in that moment, and it might feel like it's something small, like it might feel that all you're doing is singing a song on a Sunday morning, or it might feel that all you're doing is um, is uh, like reading the Word to um, discover more about how good Jesus is, or it might be something a bit bigger where you're telling somebody that doesn't know Jesus and you're talking to them about Jesus or it might be something even braver where there's somebody who's unwell and you're praying for them to be well or whatever it is it could be small it could be big but every act of obedience is actually a moment where the Lord's mercy is falling in our world and it's this ripple and it's got significance eternal significance and I feel that quite strongly that that's actually something for us to um to hold on to this morning. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your your mercy that falls. Lord, that you... Yeah. For the power of your kingdom, which is advancing, Lord, in our, in our broken world, calling your children back to your arms. And Lord, we... We just want to hear your voice... Yeah, this morning, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So I just want to get straight into it. Straight into it by reading this. <laughs> oh, what? Straight into it. I had it on the last slide. Uh, sorry, guys. Here we go. Straight into it. Straight into it. Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8. And after getting into a boat, he crossed the sea and came to his own town. And just then some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or stand up and walk? 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Stand up, take your bed, and go home. <laughs> and he stood up and he went to his home. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with such well, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. Whoa, it's pretty cool. So in this chapter of Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus and his crew. Uh, in, in Jesus' hometown. They've just got back from this really dramatic mission. Um, I spoke about it a few weeks ago, about a month ago now. They've got back from this dramatic mission across the Sea of Galilee, which is, um, which is a lake in the middle of Israel. And on this journey, uh, Jesus spoke to this deadly storm that came up. If you remember the, remember the story, Jesus was having a nap. Massive storm comes out, up the disciples freak out, they think they're going to die, and he speaks to the storm and it calmed down. Gets to the other side of the lake, goes to a graveyard, these two demon-possessed men came out, came out to him, nobody knows what to do with these guys, they're um, flippin' scary, flippin' scary, because so, they hang out in a graveyard and they're demon-possessed, sets them free, and then the townspeople go, what? The what the heck, um, can you leave now? We don't want you doing that kind of thing around here. So he's returned to his hometown, and the drama just continues, just keeps going on. This chapter that we're looking at, chapter 9, just story after story of amazing stories about uh, what, what Jesus did um, and who he is. He's, he's so mind-blowing. It's like this, this unfolding revelation, and the people around him, these people that are, that are following him and listening to him and trying to get close to him, they can't get their heads around who he is like, and the things that he does and the things that he says. It's, it's confusing. It's messing with him. And it, this chapter starts with this paralytic man. He's paralyzed. Can't walk. Can't walk. But his friends, but his friends think that Jesus can do something for him. So they bring him to Jesus to be healed. They must have heard stories or maybe they've seen the kind of thing that Jesus does. And they're hoping that Jesus is going to heal him, that Jesus is going to uh, fix his legs or fix whatever part of him that's broken. That means he, he's paralyzed. So they, so they bring him up to Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says is, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. And you're like, What? <laughs> It's not really what you'd expect. Now they're hoping, they're hoping for uh, for him to be healed. There's no, no no record that this man goes, Jesus, forgive me, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. And yet that's what Jesus does. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. It's not what you expect. Yet Jesus knows exact. It's exactly what that man needs. Before he's healed of his paralysis, before this man can walk into his future, he had to be healed of his past. He had to be set free from his past. And it, and it raises this massive question for those people that are there. Like, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven? Who can forgive sins? For the Jews to have your sins forgiven, it's a pretty complicated, pretty messy process. Uh, you do something wrong, um, you've got to get your animal, take that animal to the temple, and then, and then they slaughter that animal, and the, the animal is sort of representative of you, and its blood is representative of, of your sins. That animal paid the penalty for the sin. The priest of the temple would sacrifice the animal, and this was the process. Like, it's complicated, it's a bit messy, a bit smelly. 
But in that moment, Jesus, he kind of sidesteps all of that. And he, and he just goes to this man. And like breaking, it seems like Jesus is breaking all the rules. Like Jesus is messing with the system. And he goes, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. And of course, the scribes, the scribes, uh, they're guys that, that teachers of the law, preachers, I guess, teachers of the law, they flip out. Of course they do. They go, you know, they're thinking, they're thinking to themselves, you can't do that. Only God can do that. And so if you're saying your sins are forgiven, what does that mean? It means that he's putting himself sort of on, the, on this level with God, which is blas- blasphemy, right? It's blasphemy, unless it's true. And the scribes are essentially asking the same kind of question that Jesus' disciples asked. And when he, when he went across the lake and the storm came up and Jesus spoke to the storm and the storm was calm, they go, what sort of man is this? So it's the same kind of question. It's like, who can do this kind of thing? Who can calm storms? Who can say, who, who can say your sins are forgiven? And then Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, Perceiving their thoughts. He goes, <laughs> I really like it, eh? His response, <clears throat> sorry, I've just got to. Well, well, what's easier? Like, is it easier to say uh, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to, easier to, to say uh, stand up and walk? And, um, you know, it's a rhetorical question, but the answer is pretty, pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's easy for me to go up to somebody and say your sins are forgiven. They might think I'm pretty weird for doing that, um, but you know it's a bit easier to do that than to than to go to somebody that can't walk and say, "Okay, stand up and walk now." And so Jesus Jesus says this. He goes, "Is it easier to say easy to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk?" And then Jesus, like to prove his point, he goes to the man, "Stand up and walk. Stand up, take your bed, and go go home." And he stood up and he went to his home. And in that moment, Jesus demonstrates that he has authority to forgive sins. If Jesus says your sins are forgiven, then your sins are forgiven. He has the authority to do that. End of story. Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk into the new day. And John, it says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. If your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. I'll come back to that. When I was growing up, um, and I'm sure a lot of you will relate to this, sort of that, that pressure of figuring out what you're going to be when you grow up, what you're going to be when you're, when you're an adult. And uh, when, I was, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I was really fascinated with insects, hey mum and dad, with, with creepy crawlies. Um, I'd do school projects on ants and spiders and, and things like that. I had my magnifying glass, and um, you know what kids do with magnifying glasses and insects. <laughs> it's not always looking down at the insect. Eh? It's getting that perfect angle of sun and did that, felt bad about it. Okay, oh, okay confession. Um, one time uh, we were up at Lake Taupo and there was all these cicadas and, and me and my friend thought it would be a good time to um, take these cicadas and, and uh, dismember them. Uh, and so pulled the wings off them, pulled the legs off them. And then uh, Dad found out, and he goes, James, I can't believe you do something like that. 
<laughs> Even now, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry to all those cicadas. I feel so bad. I do. I feel so bad. I felt so bad. I never wanted to do that again. Anyway, I loved I loved insects, but growing but uh, at primary school. <laughs> at primary school, uh, my um, my grandpa he was a doctor, and, and at primary school I got into my head that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, like a, um, it was actually it was actually a bit more than just a thought that I'm gonna I, I want to be a doctor. I thought this is my destiny. I'm gonna be a doctor, and. Um, and so whenever somebody asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd say, I want to be, I want to be a doctor, uh, a medical doctor, just so, just so you know. Not a pretend doctor like, a, like I am. But anyway, um, but I didn't, I didn't really think too much about what it involved. And so I went through your primary school and then secondary school. And then towards the end of my, um, back then it was called seventh form, and now it's like year 13 or something, right? Yeah, right? Um, Towards the end, I think it was probably like November, I go to the guidance counsellor and I go, okay, I want to be a doctor, what do I need to do? And <laughs> she, I, I can't remember if she laughed at me, but um, it, it turned out that um, I'd already, I way, missed, I way missed the date that you meant to apply to get into med school in Auckland. And so the other option was to do, um, back then you could do this thing called a medical intermediate year. At, um, at a few different universities, and you could do this medical intermediate year, and if you got good enough grades, you could then apply to do the med program at Otago University. And by good enough grades, I mean um, like straight A's, that would give you a chance. Straight A pluses, that's what you, that's what you needed. Anyway, so um, so I was too late to apply for um, for the Auckland University, and uh, I don't think the guidance counsellor like she was that encouraging because I could. I think looking back, she could tell that actually I really wasn't that uh, motivated to get good enough grades to get into the med program. Anyway, she was probably right. Anyway, where was I? I had this, I had this weird idea that uh, being a doctor was my destiny, like this is what God was going to do. And, um, and so I did the med intermediate year up at, up at Victoria University, and while all... There was, there was quite a few people in my in my year all trying to get into the same program down in Otago. And they were like busting their guts studying in the library trying to get straight A pluses. And uh, because it was my destiny to be a doctor, I was just hanging out with my friends outside the library, um, spending hours playing hacky sack. <laughs> hacky sack, yeah. So I passed, I passed my papers, got to the end of the year, applied to get into Otago. Didn't get in. No. Couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> I really didn't have things in clear in my head. I, I had this. I, I, if I'd really felt, looking back now, if I'd really felt that being a doctor was my calling, I would have done everything I could have to have, to have got into that, into that, um, into that program. I wouldn't have been outside, outside the library playing with my friends. Uh, I would have been inside the library um, stressing out. If I'd really felt that God was calling me to that, I would have given everything, everything I could have to follow his calling. Like I would have resounded in my heart. There would have been that spark or that fire of motivation. I go, this is what, this is what God's calling me to do. It would have sustained me through the hard slog because, of man, it would have actually been really, really hard. That first year would have been hard, and every year after that would have been hard. And being a junior doctor sounds like 
the worst thing in the world to me now. Um, actually, being a doctor doesn't really sound that great to me, so I'm pretty, pretty glad that didn't work out, maybe. Although I'd be loaded. So. Yeah. <laughs> Can't have everything, no. <laughs> I had this wrong idea that if God wanted me to be a medical doctor, then he was just going to make it happen. I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to give up anything. And uh, looking back now, in my wiser old age of 41, I know that's not really how it works. Being obedient to God's calling, it, it still involves sacrifice. Like, yeah, yeah, God, God's amazing. He's 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 merciful, and he and he uh, he does. He opens doors, and and he helps us into into doing the things that he's calling us into. But it requires something of us as well. It requires something of me. And as a as a teenager and in my early 20s, I just wasn't prepared to do that, to become a doctor. So Jesus, he's just healed this paralytic man. He said to him, your sins are forgiven. That part's over. Now walk into, now walk into your new life. Go home. <laughs> and now Jesus is walking along and he sees a man. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. It's quite amazing. This is uh, chapter 9 of Matthew, so we're well into it. It's taken us all year to get to chapter 9, but we're, we're well into it. And it's finally this point where Matthew introduces himself. He's probably the same person that's called Levi in the books of Mark and, and Mark and Luke. And he's a dirty, rotten tax collector. Not well loved by the Jews, as you can imagine. The tax system that they were under was a Roman system. So the Jews were uh, under Roman occupation, and the Romans set up the system. They would recruit Jews to, to, le- to collect tax from other Jews. So tax collectors were essentially collaborators. Apparently the, the tax collectors, they'd, they'd pay a fee to the Romans in order to have that privilege of collecting tax from their countrymen. And... Um, so they were seen by Jews as being uh, collaborators. They'd sold out to the Romans for their own profit. They'd set up uh, tax booths um, at places where I guess you'd get lot, lots of people passing through with their goods and their merchandise and so on. Um, the story is happening near the Sea of Galilee. So presumably you've got all these like people, these fishermen coming past with, I don't know, I can't really imagine it. They didn't have a fridge or a freezer. So come along with their cart of fish. And the tax man would go, okay, 10% of your fish and a bit more for me, something like that. Um, if you're like me, uh, when you get paid, um, you, don't even, you don't even see your tax, IRD. It disappears over to IRD straight away, but not, not so for these fishermen and merchants and so on. They'd have all the stuff that they worked hard for and then they'd just see it, see it uh, disappearing into the tax booth. And then the tax man, they're also kind of well known to take a bit extra for themselves, like so they would... Uh, collect a bit of tax, I guess for the Romans, uh, or for the city council or whatever, and then they'd take a bit, bit for themselves. So they were robbing them. You can understand why they're not going to be well liked by, by the Jews, by their, by their countrymen. And they wouldn't have been liked by the Romans either, because they're, you know, they're essentially these guys that are, that are the pawns of, pawns of the Romans. Does Dan want to come hear me preach, Anna? Oh, okay. I've got some good stuff coming. I reckon. So they're not well loved. No, Jews don't like them. Romans just using them. This is, but this is how they made their living. This is how they um, put you know butter on their bread. And this is Matthew. 
Matthew, whose gospel we're reading, this tax collector, sitting in his tax booth. Along the road comes Jesus, and all Jesus says to Matthew is two words, follow me. There must have been something else going on, right? There must have, when Jesus spoke these words, follow me, there must have been something that happened in, in Matthew's heart at that point. Like there's something, something powerful, something so dramatic and so, so moving that he then, he then got up and followed him. Like he got up and he leaves behind his tax booth. All of this fish, or whatever was in there. I don't know if there was fish. Leaves that part of his life behind. Like, what did he do for a job after that? I don't know. All we know about Matthew is that he becomes, he becomes this, this crew, like one of the 12 disciples, these guys that followed Jesus. And then, and then for some reason, Jesus entrusted these men with his mission to unleash the kingdom of God on, on the world. And it's people like Matthew that we thank um, that 2,000 years later, uh, we can we can come to know Jesus. This tax collector, it's ridiculous. He followed Jesus all the way. Some traditions teach that um, that Matthew uh, went on and visited a few other countries and ended up being martyred in Ethiopia where he was stabbed to death. He followed Jesus all the way. So Jesus then goes to dinner. It doesn't say how it happened. Anyway, Jesus went to dinner at Matthew's, Matthew's house. And Matthew... Being a tax collector, he uh, his friend invites his friends, he invites his workmates, and so on. And they weren't necessarily society's most respectable people. In fact, they they described they called tax collectors and sinners. And I thought that's not very PC, but this is what it says: As he sat down at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. It's an amazing man, Jesus. He, he speaks to a storm, this killer storm, and the storm comes down. He says to the, to the paralyzed man lying on his mat, he goes, your sins are forgiven. And now he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a quite an obvious irony here, isn't there? Because he's saying to these Pharisees, who needs the, who needs the doctor? Who needs the physician? It's those that are sick. I have come to call not the righteous but the sinners. And he's saying this to the Pharisees and they're going, oh yeah, okay, we get it now. We're, we're righteous and they're, the tax collectors and sinners, they're not righteous and so you've come for them. Maybe that's what they thought. But we know from our perspective that these Pharisees, they're just as sick as the so-called tax collectors and sinners. They're just as broken. They're just as sick as anyone else. Jesus was there, was there calling to them as well. Just as much as he was calling the tax collectors and sinners. But the Pharisees are too deaf, they're too proud to hear it. And do they need the doctor? We all need the doctor. And Jesus came to call not the righteous but the sinners. He's come, he came to call all of us. And soon after this, soon after this, a, a Jewish leader comes up to Jesus because his, uh, his, his, daughter, his daughter's just died. 
And the, and the synagogue leader comes up to Jesus and goes, if only you'd come to my house. If only you'd come to my house and lay hands on her, she will live again. And so Jesus goes, the funeral's already underway. They've got music playing. They did funerals a bit differently that time. The mourners are already mourning. And so Jesus turns up and, and they all laugh at him because he says that the, the girl, the daughter's not dead, she's only sleeping. And it's the kind of laughter, if you imagine it, it's not, it's not a happy laughter. It's not like they're laughing at him because he told a great joke. They're laughing at him because like, they're mocking him. They're, it's a cutting, mocking, and bitter laugh, isn't it? And while they laugh, actually he boots them all out. He goes, I can't have you on the same house. <laughs> he sends them out. He goes into the girl's room and he, and he picks her up by the hand. And he calls her into life. And she gets up. She's alive, most definitely alive. And maybe then I always wonder, like, did Jesus then, you know, walks out, walks out of the house with that girl. And then the crowd's laughter turns to joyful laughter. And so we have these three stories. The story of, of uh, Jesus forgiving the paralytic man of his sins and then saying, stand up, walk, go home. Then we have Jesus saying to a tax collector, follow me, and the tax collector leaving that part of his life behind, his, his identity as a tax collector behind, he's now a follower of Jesus. He gets up, follows Jesus. And then in the final story, we have this the story of, of the dead girl, and Jesus takes her by the hand, and she stands up, and she's alive. They're all resurrection stories. They're all pointing towards this time when Jesus... He'd been crucified, he'd been in the grave for three days, and then he's resurrected. He stands and he walks again. These are, these are resurrection moments that speak across thousands of years to us today. So over the last, last few days, um, on Thursday and Friday, I was really, really blessed to be able to go along to the, to the Arise conference um, that was happening in town. Really, really inspiring, really cool. During the worship time, I was on Friday morning. They sing different songs to us, man. Uh, so you, t- <laughs> you know, when you sing a diff- when you sing a song that you're not used to, and you take you take notice of the words, because uh, all of a sudden you, you got to yeah. Anyway, you think about them a bit more. Um, so there was a song, and um, and I really struggled to sing it. And it, it was a song that had had these words in it, and it it was about it was about having clean hands, and about having a pure heart. And these words come up on the screen, and I just, I just really struggled to sing it. I was like, how can I sing it? I'm so aware, I'm so aware of my, of my failure, of, my, um, of the things that mean that I'm not pure, that I don't have clean hands. And I felt like I was struggling with this, and I felt like the Lord saying to me, when are you going to accept my forgiveness? When are you going to accept my forgiveness? When are, you, when are you going to accept my robe of righteousness? And he just left it hanging like that. And I was like, yeah, you got me. <laughs> you got me, God. I'm standing there going, oh, I can't sing it because I don't feel pure. And then, and then, God, when are you going to accept my forgiveness? When are you going to put on my robe of righteousness? And I, I realized, I've been thinking about it since then, I find it really hard to accept that I'm forgiven, that Jesus robed me with his righteousness, that I, have, that, I, that I have clean hands and a pure heart. 
Instead, I keep identifying myself with, with sin and as being a sinner. It's, you know, and identity is a powerful thing. It's like how you, it's, it's, it, you walk out of that, that sort of awareness. So I found it hard to sing that song. And I realized, man, I need to, I need to, I need to own it. I need to accept it. I need to go, yes, I'm forgiven. Yes, yes, because of you, Jesus, I have, I have, a, I have clean hands and a pure heart. Because of you, Jesus, I'm robed in righteousness. You can't see it. <laughs> Dad gave it to me a year ago. It's in the office. <laughs> yeah, I was tempted. It's a, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's an it's a, uh, old curtain. I think, hey, Dad. But it's symbolic. It's really cool. Actually, I do put it on sometimes, and it, and it kind of it, um, it falls to bits a wee bit. And so I have like these... <laughs> but it's my robe of righteousness. And actually... Next time I put it on, I'm going to go, the, the, you know, it's symbolic. It's not, it's a curtain, but it's symbolic. It's, it's my robe of righteousness because of Jesus. We need to identify ourselves. What did, what did Matthew do? He goes, if he's writing this, he goes, yeah, I was a tax collector. That's who I was. But now I'm a follower of Jesus. I was a tax collector, that's who I was. But then I stood up and I left that behind and now I'm a follower of Jesus. We need to, um, what did I say here? I wrote something good. We need to identify ourselves first and foremost as followers of Jesus. And, it, and it's freedom, my goodness. Letting go of the past. Take heart, your sins are forgiven, he said to that paralyzed man. What does it mean to follow Jesus? For Matthew, it meant giving up his means of earning a living. What did he do for income after that? Don't know. And if tradition is correct, then it meant being obedient all the way to martyrdom. And yet somehow that journey was actually, was actually following Jesus was walking towards life. He's letting go of, of what he thought was giving him life, his, his means of an income, and creaming a bit. But he's actually walking towards life, the way of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Following him means following life. And later on in, in Matthew, same book, okay, a few chapters later, he told Jesus told his disciples, maybe I've got it here. This is how you follow Jesus. If any, if anyone want, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world, but forfeit forfeit their life? Or what will they gain in return for their life? What will it profit them if they gain the whole world? If they tax all the fishermen of all their fish, what are they going to gain? What are we going to gain? Massive challenge. Oh man, this is hitting me. This is hard, isn't it? It's a hard, it sounds hard. Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. But it's, it's a journey towards life, actually. It's a journey towards freedom. Hits us hard because it reminds us that there's actually a sacrifice in following Jesus. We don't like to think about that. I don't like to think about that. It reminds us that it's not all about me. It's not all about how I feel. 
It's not about me being happy. It's not even about me being comfortable. Taking up the cross, that doesn't sound very comfortable, actually. It's not a comfortable image. Uh, when I when I imagined, when I had this thought in my head that I was going to be a medical doctor, uh, I was not prepared to, to, to work hard towards that, to, for the sacrifice, to do everything I could to follow that calling. And yet the calling of Jesus... The calling of Jesus is far, far bigger than a career or a vocation. Like within, within the call of Jesus, we find true purpose and significance. We find life. I think this was in one of the songs that we sang this morning. One of the, one of the speakers at the Arise Conference, uh, he, he preached about the importance of each day, like the decisions that we make each day or each moment. Um, he was talking about how how he's always he has a tendency to think ahead and like almost wish away wish away the present like thinking um, you know projecting into the future, but how he's sort of saying no this is the moment like this is the this is the day this is all we have and I think it's really it's a really useful thing to hold on to because if we think of Matthew oh he followed Jesus and then he was martyred. Or we think about the fullness of what this means. Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We go, oh, but you know, that's hard to do. But like day by day or step by step, I think I think we can walk in that direction. When Matthew got up out of that tax booth and followed Jesus, was he thinking about the end game? Was he thinking about what it's going to cost him in the long run? I don't think he was. I think he was just being obedient in that moment. He was like, uh, his, like in that moment, I'm sure that he was leaving behind his, his, his profession. He realized that he couldn't do that anymore. But it, was the, but it was the faithful obedience over the course of his life, day by day, moment by moment. These, de- these decisions that we make when they come to us, these decisions, they, they might actually be tough. They might hurt. We might rather sleep in. We might rather watch Netflix. <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff on Netflix. Um, easy target, but Facebook, right? Um, but what is what is what is Jesus actually calling us to do? That's so what I think. Maybe that maybe that picture that I had during worship was was connected with us somehow. Like every every act of obedience, even if the small ones, even if it's just like taking a moment of our day and putting our attention to God or or sharing a word with somebody else or being obedient, whatever way it is, these are actually really significant moments. Don't worry about like the long term thing necessarily. It's it's quite cool to think about um the long-term thing sometimes, but sometimes it's too heavy. But we can think about the small steps, like what am I going to do in this next moment? Or when I finish, when I finally finish preaching, sorry, I still got half an hour to go. When I finally finish preaching, then, like then what? What's going to be the next thing? Or when we, when we walk, out of, walk out of this church and we get in our cars and we drive home, is it just back to, like the, is it just back to the everyday grind? Because that's going to that's gonna continue. But every every day there's these moments where where God will whisper to us and He goes this this is what I want you to do or maybe it's this I don't want you to do this. As pastor of the church, I want to say to you, I want you to come to church every Sunday. <laughs> and I do. But the thing is, you know, you've got to be responding to what God's God's calling you to. 
I see great value in coming to church every Sunday. I see great value in being part of, part of a community and like giving up our giving up what we might rather do in order and, and for the community or even if it's just to say, Lord, like um, you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna go to church today, but um, I wanna be obedient to you somehow. Even if it's just that. Where was I up to? It's a challenge, right? But it's very, very positive. It's very encouraging. Okay, there's this uh, really awesome um, quote from a guy called Eugene Peterson, and Tessa put it in the CV News this week. It was, eh? Oh, Eugene Peterson. Thank God for Eugene Peterson. I hope he's having fun up in heaven at the moment. What a legend. He goes, so why church? Why church? Why do we bother with this thing? Why do we bother like meeting up on a Sunday morning? We could be getting, no, I won't say it, won't get there, sorry. <laughs> Got to watch myself sometimes. Why church? Why church? The short answer, the short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Now, Wellington's pretty cool. Wellington's pretty good. But without Jesus, it's a country, a city of death. A colony of heaven in this country of death. Church is the core element in the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. Big words, Jesus-inaugurated means that Jesus basically unleashed it. This moment where Jesus unleashed the kingdom of God in this world, he inaugurated it. Like the inauguration of a, of a president. Like that's, that's this moment, right? Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God in this world. It's not that the kingdom... It's not that, it is not that kingdom complete. Church is not the kingdom. Church is not the kingdom, but is a witness to that kingdom. Church is an appointed gathering of named people in particular places. Named people, like we've got our identities. God sees us as individuals. He sees us as individuals and as a church. Named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. He practiced a life of resurrection. Like, like, like the man who was paralyzed, had his sins forgiven, and he walks away. It's a resurrection moment. Or Matthew walking away from his past as a tax collector and, and following Jesus. Resurrection. The girl coming, being restored from death to life. Resurrection. Accepting that we're forgiven. Putting on Jesus' robe of righteousness on us. It's resurrection. It's resurrection moments. Powerful. Powerful witness. Practice a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. Life out of death. Life that trumps death. Life that is the last word. Jesus' life. Church is a colony of heaven in a country of death. Our calling to follow Jesus is a big, big calling. It's much bigger than my imagined calling to be a doctor. It's, it's for ourselves, yeah, totally for ourselves. It's, it's, a, it's a calling to freedom and to hope and new life, but it's also a calling for the world around us. We have to grow up. We have to grow up and take responsibility for following his call. I don't want to be like my teenage self anymore, 18 years old, going, my destiny is to be a doctor, so I can just go and play with my friends now, and then one day I'll be a doctor. We've got to take responsibility for our calling. If we're called, we're called. Like, own it. If Jesus is calling us to follow him, we've got to own it. 
And we've got to be like Matthew. We've got to get up. Got to get out of that tax booth, whatever it looks like. It's a pretty good place for earning a living and robbing people. It's got to get up out of that, whatever it looks like. It's a metaphor for us. Get up out of that text booth and walk in freedom. I called this talk, stand up, get up, and walk. Apparently last night the preacher at Arise Conference stole my talk. Yeah, he did. But that's really interesting. So if he was preaching, I don't know how many thousands of people were in the TSB arena. People um, from all across Wellington, all across New Zealand, lots of churches represented. He feels the preacher, uh, he goes, you know, he, he must have felt this was what the Lord wanted to share with, with, these, with all these people and all these churches. At the same time yesterday, I felt, I didn't go last night, I didn't know who was going to preach out. But somehow I felt this is, what, this is what I felt the Lord wanted me to share today. Don't you think there's some, that's significant? That the Lord is speaking to churches in New Zealand. There are some big wigs there. He's speaking to the church in New Zealand. He's speaking the same message to us. Like, what are we going to do with that? Oh, man, I feel like there's a bit of response we've got to do. Um, uh, I, I feel very convicted myself. I feel like there's things I've got to make changes to follow Jesus. You might feel the same. And I feel like there's a, um, sometimes we do, we do like these physical acts and it's a bit like that robe of righteousness that dad gave me. It's a symbolic thing, but it, but it represents a, a decision that we're actually making in our heart or in our mind. And in one moment we're going, okay, this is what I want to be like. I want to follow Jesus. I want to, I want to leave behind that, that part of my life, that dead part of my life. Um, I think last night, from what I've heard, the guy talked about how the paralyzed man, uh, Jesus told him to pick up his mat. Like, we've got we've to pick up our past so no one trips up, no one else trips up over it. Dad had a picture before the service of, of us picking up our mats and then the sword from heaven chopping up those things. Like, that's over, it's done with. And I feel like, could just be me, but I actually want to respond to the word that I've preached this morning. <laughs> So let's do it. Why don't you stand, stand up, and then, uh, and if you do want to respond, then I think the best way to do it is actually take some steps, and I think steps towards the cross, representing what Jesus, he died for us, he died once and for all, our sins are forgiven, he's calling us into new life, and that new life actually looks like letting go of our old life. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence this morning. Lord, I don't know if I've ever felt such a, um, such, a, such a fire in my belly to preach such a thing like this. I actually feel very very humbled and very convicted, Lord Jesus. But I, but I hope and I pray that this was something that you wanted to share with, with your church, with your children this morning. Lord, that you would call us towards new life and towards freedom, to let go of the things that are holding us back from skipping and dancing with you and enjoying your presence and being fully alive being formed into your image, Lord Jesus. So I pray that even now, Lord, Lord, as we take physical steps towards you, Lord, that you would meet us, meet us there. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So if, if that's something you, you identify with that and you, and you want to uh, respond, then why don't you just come up now and um, come now. May spirit fall on these ones, Lord Jesus.
Well, Jesus, as we come before you, we're taking steps towards you. Lord, we're sorry for the things that we've hold, held on to. I'm sorry for the things that, that have distracted us from uh, hearing your word. That are trying to lure us back into the ways of death. Lord, would you forgive us? Thank you for your mercy and help us to be obedient, Lord Jesus. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. To your kingdom come, Lord Jesus. To your kingdom come, Lord Jesus.